Wow, there's just so much truth right there in that story, and yet we get to hear a story that Jesus taught that has the same message, and the message really answers the question of what do I need to do to have access to heaven? What do I really need to do to be accepted or approved by God? What do I need to do to be able to have eternal life? Uh, and what do I spend my time here on earth doing? What am I part of? Uh, the story Jesus tells actually ends this way. He says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And uh, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at another one of Jesus' stories, and we're going to answer the question is, how do you get in? You know, how do you make your way into heaven? Is there a path? And we want to make sure that we're on the right path, that when we get to this place that we don't end up not being able to take it back and being at this place and realizing that we've lived our lives according to the wrong plan. The wrong plan when we get to that place. If you want to take your message notes out, they look like this, and they have all the verses we're going to use today on them, and also a place for you to take some notes if you were to choose to do that this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to uh, Luke chapter 18. If you picked up one of these lobby Bibles, it's on page 800, I believe. Yeah, page 800 is that you can turn to Luke chapter 18 there and follow along in our story today. But right at the top of the notes is the, the theme verse for this series as Jesus told a story, and as we're looking at many of the stories that he told, we're using this to kind of kick us in. Jesus told many stories in the form of parables such as this one. And then he says this, and about, it's true about every story he told, and so it would be true about the story today as well. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. I want to ask if everyone would just bow your heads for a moment, and let's see if we have ears to hear today. God, we just come before you, and we just ask you that you would speak to us. God, I just pray, I know the uh, significance of today in the lives of many people in this room. God, I know that there are people all over the spiritual roadmap and their understanding. There are folks that here today that, uh, that if their, day, their number was called today, uh, would have no idea about their eternal destiny. And this would hope that uh, because they were good, that they would be able to be accepted by you. And Lord, I know that there are folks who have placed all their hope and they've bet the farm on that plan. And God, I pray today that you would help each of us to understand how it is that we do get forgiveness, how it is that we do have access to eternity in heaven. And God, I just pray that we would be willing today to make the choice, to make the choice that's before us today to choose Jesus. And we pray in advance for that moment that's going to happen at the end of our time together. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, Jesus told this story. It's in uh, Luke chapter 18. I want to read it to you, beginning in verse 9. This is how it begins. Then Jesus told this story to some, some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. And here's the story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. We have to know tax collectors uh, were looked down on that end that day, not like today where they're elevated and you know, held up. Uh, 
right? Someone said that, you know, that they were doing a tour of Washington, D.C., and as they went by the IRS building, the tour guide said, that's the most hated building in Washington, D.C., right there. It's despised tax collector for many reasons, and I don't have time to go into the details as to why tax collectors were despised in this country, but basically the Roman system was that tax collectors were hired by the uh, Romans, that Jewish people were hired as tax collectors by the Romans, and that they could make their money on how much they could get from people, and so they were pretty despised that they would do this and and, uh, take from their own people. And it says this, the Pharisee, on the other hand, stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. Can you just imagine this prayer, right? Oh, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. Uh, I'm certainly not like that tax collector back there, that one that no one likes and despises. I'm certainly like that. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. So that's how much I do for you. Then Jesus goes on. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his brow in sorrow, saying, beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus tells this about the story at that moment, and you gotta know that when he gets to this place, the air is thick as a knife with tension and anger at him. He is gutsy at this point to be able to call on the carpet those who had built their life on the method, the gaining God's approval from uh, their own efforts and then from holding other people down and despising them, not allowing them to get, feel like they could get to God. And then Jesus says this, he says, I tell you this, this sinner, he surprised them all because they expected the Pharisee to be elevated, but he says this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. Therefore, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. Now this story is just another long story in a sequence of parables that Jesus taught when he was accused of hanging around with sinners. He was accused of hanging around with those that were despised in his culture, that the establishment, the religious establishment, had labeled as sinners, those who were ostracized. Those are the ones that Jesus seemed to hang around with the most when he was walking the face of the earth. He was accused of being like them and hanging with them. And so this is just one of many parables, stories he taught that really draw our attention to the fact that that's who he came for. And then he contrasted that with those who everybody else would say, they're the ones that are the spiritual ones. They were close to God. And we get the picture that that's really not the way it was. So he tells this story. It's designed to help us see who's in and who's out. To realize that those who thought they were in may not be in. Those who thought they were out may actually be in. As we look at what Jesus talks to us through the uh, verses we're looking at. In this story, Jesus contrasts two very different kind of people. And I think that if we're honest today, as he contrasts two different kinds of people, that we are both. I just want to say that we are both kinds of people. You may think today that you're one or the other, but we are both if we look at this in many different ways. But he uses this contrast to show what it's like to have an authentic heart toward God. These two characters illustrate for us what it means to be approved by God, to be accepted by him. So as we look at this, we look at this story, Jesus labels this Pharisee, and he wants us to understand that as he labels the Pharisee, that he wants us to be authentic. So we're going to look at the Pharisee first, and we're going to look at the tax collector second, and both of them have an action step. And the first action step that has to do with the Pharisee is this. If I want to be accepted by God, I must give up the outside-in plan. I must give up the outside-in plan. 
We must give up the plan that says that we are approved of or accepted by God based on what we do, what we say, or how we act. You know, Jesus began that whole parable in verse 9 by saying this. He told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness, and then they scorned everybody else. He's talking about Pharisees here. Now, you got to know, in our day, we have a different view of Pharisees than they had in Jesus' day. In our day, when we say someone's a Pharisee, that's not a compliment, right? It's not a compliment at all. It means they're judgmental. It means that they're holding things over us. It means that they're not the kind of person that we want to go to lunch with after church. Pharisees were people that people avoided. But in, in, in our day, that's how we look at them. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were held up. They were respected. They were the ones who knew God's word. They are the ones that knew God. And people came to the Pharisees to have God taught to them. So they were looked up to because of their dedication to the law, their dedication to God, their dedication to the religious services that they did. And it says that they were righteous. So they had righteousness. Now that word righteous, what it means actually means is to be approved by, to be accepted by. It means to be past the scrutiny of God. So that means that they, they felt that that's who they were, that they'd been approved by him, they were accepted by him, they'd passed scrutiny. So the question is, how do you gain acceptance? How do you gain approval? How do you gain the, overcome uh, the scrutiny that God would place on us about our ability to keep the law? So in this story, the Pharisees talk, we t- were talking about a guy who built his whole life on what, it's what I do that gains me approval from God. It's how I act. It's what I say. It's the observances that I follow. And here's the premise right there, the premise. It says we base our approval on how well we keep the rules or measure up to others. So we base our approval with ourselves, with our peer group, and with God based on how well we keep the rules and how well we are able to manage the religious observances and then also how we measure up to how others are keeping the rules as well. This plan basically says my morality, my behavior, my religious acts equals my acceptance by God. Equals, I'll use this word, my salvation, my ability to be in relationship with him. This approach looks at behavior, not character. It looks at, and it measures from behavior the approval that someone has, their standing they have. So this Pharisee, here's what he said. I was going to reread it. He says, I do not cheat. I do not sin. I do not rob. I do not commit adultery. Now, these are Ten Commandments. You know that? It comes from the Ten Commandments. So it's a good thing he's saying that, right? He doesn't violate the Ten Commandments. So I should be pretty honest about that. That's good. God expects obedience from everyone. But then he goes on and he kind of talks about how he's expanded the rules a little bit to show that he has more, uh, that he's a, a better person than most people. He's expanded them. He says this, I fast. And he says this, I fast twice a week. And you've got to know that when someone fasts in his day, now some of you may fast twice a week, and that's just cultural in the way that you would look at life and health and all that, you know, uh, nutritional stuff. But for this man to say, I fast twice a week, he was saying, I religiously fast as, a, as an observance twice a week. And so this would make him like some kind of super Pharisee. You know, some kind of, you know, he would really, he was at high marks because he would fast twice a week. So, you know, I want to ask why. Anybody here know? How many times the Jewish religious law asked a person to fast? How many times were we were supposed to fast in a year? One time a year. The Jewish law said that at Yom Kippur, that one time a year that someone should fast. Now there were other times that we would fast, 
but this was the one required time. So when he was saying, I fast twice a week, he's just saying, look at me. I fast 104 times a year. And so I have elevated myself up above all you other pagans and heathens around me because of the way I live life. Then he says, I tithe. Here's another way that he said that the way it's verbalized there in the Greek is he tithed on everything he had, everything that came to him. The Jewish law said that you didn't have to tithe on something that came to you that had already been tithed on when someone else you know, sold it themselves. So certain crops, if they are, it's already been tithed on, and I don't know how you kept this system, okay? If it's already been tithed on by someone else, you didn't have to tithe on it when it came to you. And so that you were to use that. But he's saying, hey, guess what? I just, I'm just going to tithe on everything. So I give 10% of everything. I would highly encourage that method for you too. <laughs> um, but not because I said so, not to make me happy, okay? <laughs> uh, I just think it's really cool what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know what, God? You know, and he doesn't have this, he doesn't have, there's no humility in him at all. He doesn't say, God, you know, I just thank you, God, that I'm more patient than I was last year. God, I thank you that I found myself acting gentler to my family. Or God, I thank you that I've been more faithful in this area of my life. Or God, I thank you that I'm more attuned to justice and mercy. And God, I'm just more uh, willing to let you use me to love other people through me, God. He doesn't say any kinds of that, any kinds of things like that. Uh, someone who, um, he's absolutely consumed with his external behavior. Because that is his plan, the outside-in plan. His understanding of sin and virtue is completely oriented to external behavior, keeping or breaking of rules. Now, someone who does this can live a, you know, a lot of denial about their real condition. This Pharisee reminds me of Leo Tolstoy, who once said this, I have not met a single man who was morally as good as I. Wouldn't you hate it to be married to him, huh? <laughs> But here's the deal. Here's what God wants us to know. Here's the truth about us that many of us want to deny, but God says the truth about us. It's Romans 3. It says this, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous. Not even, how many? One. Not even one. Would you underline? Not even one. No one does good. Oh, really? No one, no one does good. Not a single one. We just turn to the person next to you and say, no one does good. Just turn it right now. Come on. No one does good. I don't think we believe it. No one does good. I don't think we believe that. No one. Now, here's the deal. The Bible says this to be true, and deep inside, here's what we know. We know it's true, too. That's why there's so many people in this world that live their lives wondering, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I, do I, and they're driven, driven, driven all the time to overcome this hole inside, this understanding inside that no one is good enough and driven to try to overcompensate or compensate for their hole that they have inside. But the Bible says what we have to do is we just have to acknowledge the truth about our condition. That's what it says in 1 John. Look at this on the back of your notes. 1 John 1, 8. It says, if we, if we claim we have no sin... We are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins, if we agree with him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to lead us to a place today where we're actually be willing to say to him, to agree with him that I, am, I have sinned in my life, that I realize that there's no one who hasn't sinned and that I need 
God's plan in order to have that sin taken care of. Now, before I give us an action step, I just want to you know, talk about a couple of uh, ways that the outside-in plan robs us in life. Uh, first of all, it, it places us in danger of missing out on God's grace. So if I'm living by the outside-in plan to where I'm working my way into favor with God, I, I, it causes me to you know, potentially miss out on God's grace. In order to experience God's grace, you must come to a place where you're repentant. You must come to a place where you understand your brokenness. You must under, uh, come to a place where you understand, I cannot earn my way into God's favor. I cannot do that. And so if I'm always living that way, it robs me of that opportunity to come to that place where I throw myself on God's mercy. But the second thing that the outside-in plan uh, one of the dangers of the outside-in plan is that we spend our time judging others. We spend our time judging others. So in this, you know, in this plan, you've got a standard, and you've always got to measure it. How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? And the way you do it is you look at how are they doing? How are they doing? How are they doing? And so you look at them, and you judge yourself based on how other people are living their lives. We compare ourselves with other people. We look around, and you know what? It doesn't take much at all to find people that you're better, that you're doing a better job than, honestly. You look at them and say, well, I'm doing a better job with them. Oh, I'm up here. And so we don't look at people who may be doing better than us, but we always find folks over here that we can look at and say we're doing better. And what happens is we actually come to believe that we're better than we really are. That's what comparison, we come to believe we're better than we really are. Last week we got to attend a church and it's called North Bay Christ the King Church uh, up in uh, Washington. And the pastor reminded me of a concept that fits so well with today. I just thought I would share it with you today. And here it is. The danger of judging our condition, the danger of judging or assessing ourselves based upon our external actions is that we measure ourselves. We measure ourselves based upon our intentions and we measure other people based on their actions. We measure other people, ourselves. I intended to do this. I intend, it doesn't matter if I didn't do it, but I intended to do it, so I'm okay, and that's where I kind of have my standard. I look over here, and I don't know your intentions. I only see your actions, and so I judge you based upon your actions, and that isolates us from each other, and it actually places me in a position of superiority, superiority over other people. When we spend all our time judging people on their actions while judging ourselves based on our intentions, we will always look superior. We will always look like we've got it going our way. And we end up, what happens is also, if we're judging based on intentions rather than actions, we end up rationalizing our sins. We end up rationalizing them because we know our intentions. We know that we didn't intend to do that again, but we find ourselves doing that again. And so we excuse ourselves because the intent was more important than the action. And that separates us from each other and from God. Now, when Jesus told the story, kind of um, understanding this a little bit about the Pharisee, when Jesus tells the story, it says that the Pharisee stood by himself. So the idea here is that the Pharisee came into, you know, and by the way, they prayed every day. So they came in twice a day and prayed. So this was just something that they did. So he came in and because of his assessment of himself and assessment of everybody else, he, is, he believed that he deserved to be front and center. So he came up by himself to the front of the 
place where they prayed and he was by himself and he's in the front of that place because he deserved it because of how he had been, you know, measuring other people. It says there, the, the despised tax collector, he looked down on other people and he got top spot. He didn't want to be tainted by the sinful people who were behind him that he might rub shoulders with. So he stood by himself when he came to pray and by his posture he's in his position, he's saying, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. Now, how should we respond if we are caught up in the outside-in plan? Well, I've got a step for us today. How should we respond if we're caught up in the outside-in plan? We're all there, okay? Yes, uh, Friday. We were going to have some folks over uh, on Friday that we hadn't seen for a long time. And so uh, we've been really busy this summer. I don't know about you, but our house was kind of a wreck after the summer, okay? It needed a lot of attention, the yard, the, the inside, everything would just been kind of overlooked. Nothing against you, honey. It just been overlooked, okay? <laughs> I live there too. Okay, so, um, so on Fridays, my day off, we decided we need to clean the house, you know, because we're having people come over and needed it, but also people are coming over. So we spent all day. I mean, we just worked our tails off. It's 2.45. They're getting there at 3. We're crawling into the shower at 2.45, just sweating. Oh, I've got to take a shower now. Well, our son comes in about 3.05, and he walks, and he's been part of this whole thing, but he had this moment where he walked in, and he looked around the house, and he just smiled. And I said, what are you smiling at? And he goes, I'm just smiling because, you know, We've done all this, and they may think that it looks like this all the time. <laughs> uh, this is the standard, right, of how we do it all the time. And so it doesn't, okay? So we, what we have to do is we have to realize that some of us, we've put on this facade, and others may look at us and say, that's how they are all the time. But deep inside, there are cracks. And so we filled those cracks. Now, here's what, here's what the action step for us. Uh, in Rome, in the Roman culture, uh, they had lots of gods, okay? They had lots of gods. You had a god for everything. And so every god had to have a statue or, you know, some kind of representation that they would worship. And so because there's lots of gods and Roman culture is just expanding everywhere and everywhere they went, everyone had to have gods. Well, the god-making business uh, to make replicas, it was like the smoking business. And so, you know, they have artists, and they have people who wanted to be artists, and they had people who had never touched, a, you know, a sculpting thing in their life. And they're all making statues because that's the market. There's a lot of business in this. And so what was happening is, is that they were making these statues, and if they were like a really bad artist, which would be where I would be if I was trying to do this, is that they would make them look better by filling in the flaws and the cracks with wax. And they would fill it in with wax, and then someone would come to buy it and go, wow, this is a masterpiece. This looks awesome. And they'd buy that, and then they'd take it home. They'd put it in their yard. It looked great that night. They'd bring their friends over and get the candles out. Look at our statue. It's so great. And the next morning, the sun would come up, and the sun would shine on it, and the wax would melt out. They'd go out and look at it again, and they would see the cracks. They would see the flaws. In fact, what happened is, is that the master artists in their day, what they said that we're going to stamp our sculptures with the Latin word, uh, sine cara. And so they stamped them, which means without wax, which means without wax, sincere, without wax. And so what I'm asking you today is to get the wax out. Just look at your life and say, God, would you turn the heat up? Would you turn the light on? Would you shine it on me? Would you get the wax out? Would you take off the ways I've been hiding my brokenness so that I can move into health, so I can move to you? Would you 
illustrate for me the ways I've been trying to gain approval from you by doing things so that I can really rely on you. Would you take me off this fast track? Would you take me off this treadmill? Would you allow me to see myself as you see me? Would you allow me to be real? Now, I'm going to give you a couple of ideas on how you could, if you really want to get the wax out. Uh, one would be uh, our life skills. Uh, we have a class that's called Changes That Heal. And uh, it's a Henry Cloud series, Changes That Heal. And uh, Henry Cloud's just awesome. It's going to be facilitated by uh, a gentleman in our church who's a pastor, a family marriage therapist. He's going to be facilitating this. Well, that class is all about getting the wax out, getting real so that you can move to health. But here's a better idea. If you want to be around people who are getting the wax out, go to Celebrate Recovery on Friday night. Just right down the hall. Just right down there, there are people that every Friday night, they come in, and they've actually got heat lamps when you come in, okay? <laughs> and the heat lamps are getting the wax out because they're coming. These are people who are being real. You know, I've heard even that folks who come to Celebrate Recovery are a little intimidated by coming to Sunday because on Sunday, everybody looks like they have it together. <laughs> and down there, we're just being real. We're not sure we'll fit here. But, you know, when they do make their journey here, they're like, oh, this is great because here's what we say it all the time. We're a hospital for sinners. A hospital. This is a place where you come to get healed if you'll just be open and honest to God. Okay, so that's the first plan. That's the plan we don't want to do is the X outside in plan. Let me give you the second plan. This is the plan that the, um, the task collector was involved in that we, Jesus held up as the plan that would gain us approval by God. And that is that you and I must give in to the inside out plan. And I mean give in. That means let go. That means give in. That means say yes to him. No, hold back anymore. Say yes to him. Say yes, I'll trust you to the inside out plan. I must let him change me from the inside out. And the basic truth is right there. Here it is. In the inside out plan, we base our approval on what Jesus Christ already accomplished on our behalf. I'm just looking at the clock. Oh my gosh. Oh. Uh, I don't have time to do it all, but here's the deal. Um, this, is what, this is what we need. We really need to understand this, the, uh, what Jesus Christ already accomplished on our behalf. When Jesus is telling this story, he's referencing, he's telling the story, okay? So he's telling the truth. In the story, he's referencing his death on the cross and what's going to happen because of his death on the cross, that we would be able to come and have forgiveness because of his death, that we would be able to come because his death would cover the Ark of the Covenant, called the Mercy Seat, cover it with his blood, so that when God looked at us, he no longer judged us by how well we were keeping the law, the religious observances, the external, you know, outside-in plan, but he would judge us based upon what Jesus Christ had done by his death on the cross, and that we would have life. Now, the, so in if you read that, if you read the story now with that perspective and the tax collector, I think it'll make a little more sense. So here's what happens. The tax collector came to God and instead of being you know, full of himself for what he was done, he was full of remorse for what he had done. That's, that's the idea here. We have to be repentant. We have to be sorrowful for our condition before God. He didn't go up front so he could be front and center. He actually stood off to the back because he wasn't sure he measured up even to come into the crowd of people who were there at that point. And he came before God. God, and he was so aware of his insides, so aware of his insides, that he came before God, and it says that he pounded his chest in grief. 
in anguish. In our culture, when someone pounds their chest, how do they do it? Oh, or, oh, I'm the best, you know, that kind of thing. But this man came and pounded his chest. There's only two times in the New Testament are this exact phrase used. And this is one of them where he pounded his chest in absolute grief and anguish over his internal condition. See, he was honest about uh, his condition before God. He didn't need to compare himself to anyone else because it just didn't matter what anyone else was doing or what anyone else had done. He knew the condition of his own heart. He knew the condition of his own heart, and so he came before God because he knew the condition of his own heart, and then he says he beat his chest in grief, and he says, God, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. The word merciful, and Jesus is telling the story, so he's a master at this. That's the same word that's then used in Hebrews chapter 2 to 17 to talk about what Jesus had done that we could have forgiveness. In fact, look at that verse, Hebrews 2, 17. It says this, therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, talking about Jesus, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful, that's the word, merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. And so this tax collector, he's coming before God and he's saying, God's not going to let me off just based on what I did. God's not going to lower it and and give me a grade based on a curve. God's not going to compare me to what somebody else did. God's going to look at me and he's going to say, did you receive my gift that I gave you when my son, Jesus Christ, died for you? And that is the entrance into the door. That is the only, just only entrance into the door. When we are willing to say yes to what Jesus Christ did, in fact, look at how Paul says it in Romans 3. He says, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And so the tax collector throws himself on the mercy of God, and the tax collector says, I'm not going to be on the external end plan, but I'm going to be on the internal out plan, and I'm going to ask God to change me from the inside out, and it begins with my humbling myself and saying yes to what Jesus did on the cross. Now, I'm going to ask us to pray about that in just a minute. I'm going to give everybody a chance today if they haven't chosen Jesus to make that choice. But here's the action step I want to leave all of us today. This is going to be for all of us today. And I'm going to ask you to begin praying the same prayer that the tax collector prayed. And the way it's verbalized in today's culture, it's actually from the 5th century forward, is called the Jesus Prayer. It's called the Jesus Prayer. Some of you may be familiar with the Jesus Prayer. Those of you have done spiritual disciplines kind of work, uh, meditation kind of work on uh, God's principles, you may understand the principle of the Jesus Prayer. But there it is, the Jesus Prayer. And Jesus prays this prayer, and it's right on the screen, popping up right now. There it is. Okay, (laughs) Jesus, and this is the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Based on what I know about you, Jesus, based on what I know about me and what you did for me on the cross, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And uh, you can Google this, Google the Jesus Prayer, and there's all kinds of exercises that you can be involved in helping you meditate on this, how this meditation can actually you start in the morning and all through your day, how this one prayer can transform you from the inside 
out if you're willing to pray this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In fact, let's all read it, okay? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's do it again. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One more time. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray together. That's really where we come to, God. We thank you so much for how you spoke to, through Jesus, and this story, and how this story points out the fallacy of being in the external end plan, like the man we saw up here. Shows us the beauty of being on the inside out plan, which the woman represented. And Lord, I just come today because I know there are people in the room who have been relying on their goodness, how they've compared themselves with others, the things they've done, believing that the end, when they take their last breath, or they've thought this about their loved ones in some way, but they take their last breath, that you will surely accept them. You will surely approve of them because of what they've done. And the Bible says you will not. It's final but you will approve of every person who is willing to bend a knee before Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so God, I pray for those in the room who've never done that right now, but they're doing it right now. They're saying to Jesus, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you did it for me. I believe that that act by you made it possible for me to be approved of by a holy God. And so today, I want to receive that gift. I say yes to you, Jesus. I say yes. I ask you to fill me up. I ask you now to change me, to make me whole, to make me complete from the inside out. And God, for those of us who know you, who are following you, I ask you today to shine your light on us and melt the wax out where we're trying to put on things that would show we're better than we are. And we would learn to be real because it's in being real, it's just as the tax collector was, that we can be changed, that we can be made whole. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.